HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Vertera Dinnerware. Learn more at vertera.com. That's V-E-R-T-E-R-R-A dot com. This week on Meet and 3, we bring you stories about how Gen Z is different from their millennial predecessors through the lens of food. My knowledge of alcohol didn't really come from like Bud Light commercials or like Project X. Yeah, and that's my gripe with the platform as well, is that all these DIY videos, cooking videos, they're 20 seconds. What's one food item from your childhood that you wish you could have today? Dunkaroos, because they don't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. Although, the Dunkaroos Twitter was activated again a year ago, so it's only a matter of time. They've tweeted a couple times, it's pretty hype. Listen to Meet in 3, HRN's food news and storytelling roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Eat Your Heartland Out with me, your host, Capri Cafaro. Today, we're going to continue our conversation about old world influences on Midwestern foodways, specifically focusing on Germanic and Scandinavian cultures and their role in influencing Midwestern food. So I got to ask a question. Have you ever wondered why the football team in Minnesota is called the Vikings? Well, that's because thousands of Scandinavian immigrants settled in the upper Midwest. And they also brought some very interesting food traditions with them. Ever wonder why so much beer comes from Wisconsin? Well, that's because a significant portion of the population in the state of Wisconsin have German roots and brought with them, along with that, a rich beer tradition. On this show, as I said, we're going to take a deeper look into the influences of Germanic and Scandinavian immigrants and how they shaped the Midwestern palate. My first guest today is a familiar face and voice to many in Wisconsin and beyond. Kyle Cherick is a culinary historian and food essayist. He was the former host of Wisconsin Foodie on PBS and has won a number of awards for his essays on food culture and somebody that I've got a chance to hang out with in the past. Kyle, thanks so much for being on the show. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Well, I'm going to pick your brain today on something that I know you know a little bit about, and that is German foodways, German history, and mm -hmm. its intersection with Midwestern food and food culture. Let's uh, jump right into it and give us a, a bit of a, an insight, a 101, on 
when, why, and where German immigrants <laughs> came to sure. the Midwest? That's a sure. big question. These are and these are great questions. A lot of people just sort of take this stuff at face value and assume, you know, it happened somewhere over the rainbow, right? Um, so the Germans uh, are really very similar to the original American immigrants of the well, the, the, the sort of flawed story that we have about the Pilgrims that they were um, religious refugees, and uh, they were, but they were also part of the. Uh, Dutch East India Trading Company, and um, that's who paid for the boats and things like that to go set up outposts. And then definitely pray the way you want to. The Germans that came over, the first wave was about 1839 to 1845, and then there was another one from the 18 mid 50s until the 90s or so, and then there was another one right around the turn of the century. And just to put into perspective uh, relative to Germans in Wisconsin, so today, if you Put the census down today, you would have 36% of the nation's um, populace in Milwaukee are German, and 42% of the nation's populace uh, are German in the state of Wisconsin. So Wisconsin has got the highest population of Germans anywhere in the United States, and Milwaukee has the highest population for cities. Um, wow. Yeah, I mean, it's just so we've been a German city. I mean, the first Germans came over to landed in Milwaukee and then went to central Wisconsin and some other areas that I'll talk about. But they came over in, let's say, 1846 when the city of Milwaukee was founded, which was two years before the state was even founded. So they were really the first and the biggest wave of immigrants to America and then to Milwaukee and Wisconsin and Green Bay and Sheboygan and other areas like that. Um, but they were the biggest wave of immigrants in America in the 19th century. And it was really primarily a water uh, kind of, um, you know, transport. They came over, well, once they came over in 1865, once the steamships really came We'll be in, right back. It cut After the, these the transport from our down to 16 days from 11 weeks. So just think about three months on a boat to get to a land that you have never seen before I mean, the motivation, why, like, why would anybody put themselves through that if the motivation and the way of life that you're leaving uh, really had to be pretty dire in many ways? Um, and a lot of the reason why they settled in Wisconsin was particularly central Wisconsin really, really reminded them of their home country. There's a great letter that I have um, some excerpts. Ex excer there's a great letter that I have some excerpts from from just about the turn of the century where um, a German woman is writing her sister and she's talking about the huge swaths of land versus the little slices that they had available in Germany. And that was the truth. They came over primarily, they were craftspeople or farmers. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they could grow things here that they couldn't in larger quantities and with more freedom, religious freedom, than they could in the fatherland. Right. Well, you've mentioned Wisconsin. What other areas of the Midwest were uh, popular uh, settling places for German immigrants across the across that region? Sure. So you'll see some of them in Ohio, your state. You'll see some of them in Michigan. Um, you'll see some of them in Minnesota uh, and then in Iowa. Not really much down towards the southern states, Indiana and that sort of thing. They really, at least during that immigration period that I'm talking about, so like central 19... 
century through the beginning of the 20th, they really centered in that Midwest area. And it was the same thing that you and I would do. You basically went where you knew somebody or you heard good stories from someone that you trusted about that space. And so it just became a self-fulfilling prophecy that there were more Germans there because that's where the Germans went. Right. Well, the the Midwest is getting good PR. uh, And uh, obviously, the the German community has left their mark on uh, food in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. Uh, You mentioned that they came, many of them came particularly to Wisconsin because they saw it as similar to where they came from, uh, you know, an agricultural community, but with with a much uh, greater, um, uh, I guess, uh, expansive, literally just more land. Oh, Um, yeah. What did they, is there anything that they brought with them ingredients wise that they brought to the Midwest that maybe they introduced to um, Midwestern food that hadn't been there previously? Sure. We we really don't have any specific sort of thing. It was really more cultural know-how. I mean, the biggest through line, I guess, that you could call, uh, the biggest through line that you could name in regards to that is actually not a German, but a, a Austro-Hungarian by the name of Agustin Harstedy, who um, your Onophile listeners will know as the grandfather or godfather of California wine. He came over with vines that he had harvested and saved and packed from the Rhine Valley, which is like the Bordeaux of, of uh, Germany. And he was looking for a place to establish great wine in America. And he saw the Sauk River Valley and founded Sauk City um, and basically created the first vineyard. And after a number, I mean, he built caves and founded a city and put in a ferry and all kinds of really terrific things that are still there. The caves are still there and it's still a working vineyard uh, with a different name, Wollersheim. But um, that legacy, after a number of really tough winters, he realized it gets cold in Wisconsin. It does. <laughs> so so he packed up and he moved to California and basically founded the California wine um, you know, culture that we have now. And then it's really kind of a funny thing, but the Holstein cow, before German was, uh, the Holstein cow, before Germany was unified, there were all these different regions. And one of them, th- this northern region, where is, which is where most of the Germans originally that came to Wisconsin came from, north and northeastern Germany, that region was called Holstein because, well, that was the name of the cows. The cows were bred between a black uh, species and a white species uh, from the Netherlands and from uh, the German regions. And we have that iconic black and white spotted cow that is the Wisconsin cow, the spotted cow that's on, you know, the new Glarus bottle, that sort of thing. So they didn't really bring anything per se. They brought know-how and um, they really brought their love of crafting great food, cheese and sausage and beer. And as soon as they got here and they had the opportunity, they started making all three of those to a really, really high mark. So you, you cheese, sausage, and beer. Um, yeah. That sounds like the iconic trifecta of German <laughs> food in the Midwest. So if there is one, one place or one specific dish mm-hmm. uh, that if you were going to the Midwest, Wisconsin and beyond, and you were looking for a traditional German meal, what would it look like? What... Let us taste that meal, but by hear by hearing it, by describing yeah. it. Sure. Well, I mean, I would. You know, it's really it's it's a sausage centric meal. Um, I mean, the bratwurst that came, whether it was Bavarians and Pomeranians and that sort of thing, or the more North Baltic Germans, uh, they just adore and love their pork, and it's such a deep, deep, deep tradition 
that's part of the German palate. And in Wisconsin, initially Wisconsin, German farmers or Dutch or any of the others all grew wheat. Wisconsin was the nation's biggest wheat producer up through the Civil War and just after. And uh, wheat is also the most depletive crop you can grow. So after the soil was burned out, literally in came the pigs and the cows. And, um, you know, all the big uh, butcher names and Armour and, and Cudahy and things like that, they, they all started uh, as initially with German butchers, essentially, then expanding their businesses and other people buying them. Right. In so some cases. so what, you're, what you're saying here is that these kind of tr- these household names that are essentially part of, uh, you know, industrial yeah. uh, production, food production. Oscar Mayer. I mean, you can't get more German than that. <laughs> Well, since I have you on that, tell us about that. Tell us about Oscar Mayer and their sure. and the roots of. So there was, you know, the the, the pork barons of the nineteenth century, um, Oscar Mayer, um, uh, Patrick Cudahy, who bought a initially a German butcher shop, bought out his his boss essentially. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm you put me on the spot, and I'm spacing. There's another. There's another two or three. Uh, well, you look. It, it's it's you know everybody knows Oscar Mayer. Um, yeah. But yeah. Yeah, all we're looking for is a little bit of insight into how, again, Oscar Meyer, Oscar Meyer wieners, the Wienermobile, the cold cuts, the hot dogs. How how has that found its roots in you know <laughs> sure. German heritage? Sure. So so you know the Germans were different than many ethnic groups in that yes, poor farmers came over, but many craftspeople and I would say intelligentsia came over during those immigration waves of the second half of the nineteenth century as well. And so it wasn't just the the tired, beaten down you know sort of um, Statue of Liberty thing. Uh, they came over basically with a business plan in place, with the know-how, oftentimes with capital. Um, you know, a steamship ride over uh, at the turn of the century or before was about three pounds um, in, you know, sort of steerage uh, and up to 25 pounds uh, in sort of what we would call first class, there were some Germans riding in first class that were just saying, I want more opportunity in America, but I've got some money and I have some know-how. And um, you could raise animals. I mean, pigs, for instance, will eat anything and reproduce pretty, uh, you know, quickly. And you have a built-in consumership in all of the German population. So it really isn't much of a stretch of imagination. I mean, go where the customers are, essentially, right? For a German butcher to then have a second shop and a third shop and a fourth shop and a fifth shop. And they would move on to, you know, then supplying other places. Uh, A lot of the German pork that was basically raised in Milwaukee and surrounding areas was shipped overseas. England consumed about half of the pork that basically Milwaukee and Wisconsin was producing because they had such a great demand for it. And that kind of wealth when you're exporting through Liverpool and then the nation, I mean, it's kind of crazy, but if you were a a British soldier garrisoned in one of the countries that the sun never set on the British Empire, there was a one in three chance that when you opened up your can of salted pork for your three square meals a day, that pig was actually raised in Milwaukee. Midwestern food gone global. I mean, I'm we, telling we, you, yeah. We've talked about this as, you know, we've talked about the breadbasket of America, but it's really the breadbasket of the world too. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, so pork was, you know, I mean, the, the, the caliber of butcher and the style of butcher and the cuts that you can get, we don't think about it now, but this was really kind of a social standing. Germans and Milwaukee Germans would get dressed up to go out to buy the good cuts on certain days, relationships with the butchers, that sort of thing. Um, just as in Spain, where you walk into a great restaurant and they've got all those ham legs, right, lay, you know, hanging there. And that's a sign of a terrific restaurant. In the 1880s, it wouldn't have been uncommon to go into a really good German butcher shop and have three or four pigs hanging there and then great cuts dried and so forth and to pay top dollar because that was way, a way of expressing your, um, your cultural acumen, essentially, and your version of wealth. Uh, right. So- I love I love these visuals because it does paint a picture for our listeners who obviously are hearing and not able to see, taste or smell anything that we're talking about. And food uh, and culture is such a tactile and visual experience. But you giving us these kind of descriptions are, are great. The one other thing that I want to mention here is something that I have noticed as I've done my research and have been doing uh, interviews, talking to guests for this show is there seems to be a a trend line on the differentiations with immigrant groups um, by uh, class and income. So you may, and how that impacts the food waste. And this is exactly mm-hmm. what you're mm-hmm. talking about. So yes, you may have, uh, you know, German settlers in this case coming over that uh, may be uh, escaping uh, religious oppression or looking for uh, economic opportunity out of desperation. But mm-hmm. as you've just said, there are folks that are looking for economic opportunity because they already, they're looking for the next best, the next big thing. And we don't talk about that that much. No, no. American was the, America was the land of milk and honey. And, you know, if you think about it, I mean, you could basically sail across the ocean, you could get into New York, you took a train to Buffalo, and then you got on, you know, basically something that took you through the waterways, the Erie Canal, to the very end of the Great Lakes, you could get off in Milwaukee and then you had nothing but fertile soil for thousands and thousands of miles. And it was wide open. And if you had some know-how and a little bit of capital, I mean, that's just, and they were giving the land away. Right. (laughs) You know. (laughs) We spent a lot of time on pork. I definitely want to talk about the German influence on cheese Mm -hmm. and beer Mm -hmm. specifically. So, um, and they're two of my favorite things, as you well know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the beer making goes back to, you know, there's, I mean, it goes back to the Middle Ages. Um, there's a there's a beer that they brew in Munich, where I've been for Oktoberfest, called Optimator. And if any of your American um, audience knows the beer and they buy it, on the label it says, you know, brewing since 1016. And, you know, the first time I saw that, I had to double take like 10, 10, oh, 10, like a thousand years, basically. They've been brewing beer. And it's just one of the many breweries that are located within Munich's uh, sort of city city area. Um, and the similarities between Milwaukee and Munich are, are actually, you know, when I went, you get a similar vibe. They both have a huge festival. We have Summerfest. They have Oktoberfest. Um, their massive park, their English garden, our lakefront, the architecture, the feel of the people. I mean, during my dad's generation, people talk about how walking through the streets of Milwaukee specifically – uh, there would be signs in the window saying English spoken here because there were so many German businesses and they wanted to be open to folks that just spoke English as well. So um, the brewing history that came over with people that knew how to brew as soon as they could get the requirements, we had plenty of water, right? So you got the barley and the hops and the other things. 
and and you're off and going. And um, this was just sort of, uh, you know, uh, someone that that loves to brew beer can't be stopped. I mean, you experienced that when you met with uh, Deb and Dan Carey. They're going to brew beer. Right. Even and if and it's Deb and home. Dan Carey, they, for, for those of our listeners who are unfamiliar, they are the uh, the family and the, the talent behind New Glarus Brewing in right. New Glarus, Wisconsin, um, that you can't get outside of Wisconsin because they are so committed to preserving the the local the locally used agriculture and, and um, you know process there. Yeah. I've never experienced beer better than New Glarus Brewing, and I'm sad that I don't live in Wisconsin because <laughs> I can't get New Glarus Brewing beer. We recently had some people come up from, uh, even during these uh, Corona times, come up from Illinois for something they were buying from us, and uh, they, they 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 bought a, a table that we had, and and the next question was, where's a liquor store we want to buy some New Glarus beer? And if they were going to make the trip, that's what they, that's the other thing they were going to get. But uh, you're exactly right, Deb and Dan, you know, Deb was smashing her head against the distribution model and breaking into big cities like Chicago. And she finally said, people really appreciate good beer in Wisconsin. Why don't I just only sell it in Wisconsin? And um, Dan is a through and through, I mean, I think he was born brewing beer when he was a kid. It's just something he was going to do. So these German immigrants that came over with that know-how, again, they had... They had a, uh, a consumership right there, right? They had a captive audience that would appreciate the beer. They had the know-how. They had access to great fresh water, uh, grains through all the wheat that was grown here, hops, that sort of thing. Wisconsin had its own hops boom from 17, 1870s to about the 1890s. And um, so you have all those components and you have, you know, Wisconsin's always been a place of gathering around the table and celebration. And I know you and I experienced that when you came and it was such a great opportunity to show you some of that. But, you know, even in the 1860s, it, when they, if they had done, no, excuse me, back when the state became a state, they did a census. And at that time, there were 588 innkeepers and 468 groceries. And the word grocery at those days really kind of meant like a delicatessen with beer uh, and hard liquor. So it was more like a place to get small bites and then uh, some drinks. And the word delicatessen, by the way, is a German word. Um, right. So, you know, when you think about the state's population, there were over a thousand places where people could come together to get some rest, food, sustenance, and essentially celebrate. And, you know, that doesn't even include the beer halls and things like that. So it's it's just, it's such a Wisconsin thing, and it's such a part of our culture that, you know, I, I have to imagine from the get, very get-go, as soon as the fields were planted and they had just a little bit of ease in life, people started brewing and celebrating around tables and making great cheese as well, which is, you know, that comes in a little bit more from the Swiss and some of the Austrians and, and some other traditions, but there's definitely old German uh, cheesemakers too because it was, you know, for the simplest of farmsteads going back to that 10, 15 or even further, it was a great food source and you could keep it, Right. That was the good news. You could take your fresh dairy that day that would go bad and turn it into something you could eat four, six, eight, ten, twelve, twenty 12, 20 months down the road. Right. Well, and there's always beer cheese and beer cheese soup, which is the <laughs> meld of those two things, bringing all those Wisconsin flavors together. Kyle, you are a fantastic ambassador for Wisconsin food and for Midwestern food. And you've given our listeners great insight to how German and Germanic cultures live on in Midwestern foodways. So thank you again for, for joining us and for hanging out a little bit today on our show. 
This episode is brought to you by Vertera. Impressively versatile, stylishly sustainable, environmentally disposable dinnerware from Fallen Leaves. Vertera is a mission-driven company focused on making environmentally responsible single-use products. Founded in 2006 on the belief that every culinary creation deserves a beautiful, sustainably crafted foundation. Vertera reclaims earthly discards like fallen leaves and tree scraps to design elegant, disposable dinnerware that elevates the look of food presentation. In short, a beautiful, disposable plate that can go with your food to a composting facility. The team from Vertera recently made a huge pivot with their factories and started producing masks, gloves, sanitizer, and other PPE that food businesses need to safely reopen. Learn more at Vertera.com. That's V-E-R-T-E-R-R-A.com. I'm so excited to welcome my next guest. Paula Johnson is the curator of the Division of Work and Industry at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. She is also the project director for the American Food and Wine History Project and project director and curator for the exhibition Food, Transforming the American Table, 1950 to 2000. And if that was not enough, the lead curator of the Smithsonian Food History Weekend, which I all suggest everybody goes to, which is usually in November on a, on a regular year, but it's, you know, 2020, so who knows? Uh, Paula, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Capri. It's great to be here. You have an extensive academic and professional background and experience in food history, but for the purposes of this show, you are also are a Midwestern native from Minnesota yes. uh, and uh, have a personal connection to Scandinavian foodlands in, uh, in the heartland. So um, I'd love to have you tell me and our listeners, um, putting uh, you know, this group of Scandinavian immigrants into context of how and why Swedish and Norwegian immigrants arrived, particularly in the upper Midwest. Sure, happy to. The The main waves of migration from Sweden and Norway took place in the 19th century, although small numbers of Scandinavians had come to what is now the United States much earlier. It's estimated that about 3 million Scandinavians migrated to the U.S. between about 1825 and 1925, and that would include Danes, Finns, and Icelanders, as well mm. as the Swedes and Norwegians. Um, they settled across the country, but mostly in Minnesota, Wisconsin, North Dakota, and Iowa. And for many, the decision to leave the old country had to do with political and social upheaval, famines, uh, scarcity of mm -hmm. farmland, and the quest for religious freedom and, and economic opportunity. Themes that we hear about you know, pretty consistently from uh, immigrant communities, regardless of uh, their origins, those are usually mm -hmm. the, the, the primary factors. And interestingly enough, famine um, is, is oftentimes one that you just mentioned, and uh, they end up in a place like the Midwest that has um, such bounty as well for, uh, for food. So it's almost the opposite. Mm -hmm. Well, and then especially after the Civil War, many Scandinavian immigrants were recruited by steamship and railroad companies to book passage to, you know, what was billed as this new land and new life of prosperity and freedom. 
um, this land, uh, which was made available to homesteaders, was, of course, the ancestral lands taken through wars and treaties and, and mm-hmm. other tactics from indigenous peoples uh, for whom the land is still home. So as these groups of immigrants traveled to the Midwest and settled in the Midwest, uh, they obviously brought with them their own food traditions, and um, but they may have not necessarily had the same types of resources for ingredients uh, within the Midwest as far as a- agricultural production um, and, and so forth. So um, I'm really interested to know how... Uh, these these new settlers from Northern Europe, from the Scandinavian countries, uh, were able to adapt what they ate to fit what was available to them uh, from the Midwest in the Midwest. Sure, sure. Well, many of the migrants were farmers or fishermen in Norway and Sweden, and they were able to hunt deer and small animals in the wild uh, to plant crops, plant the potatoes, for example, and and gardens and also keep livestock as they had done at home. Um, they found abundant fish in the Great Lakes, walleye, mm-hmm. northern pike, um, as well as in the many lakes and, and rivers of particularly Minnesota and Wisconsin. Um, you know, as migrants do, they brought their fishing, their agricultural, and their culinary know-how with them. And they were able to establish themselves in, in these places that had unbelievably rich soil for farming. And this climate, that was pretty similar to where they'd come from. Um, of course, it wasn't easy. The, the account of Norwegian immigrants um, in oh, the 1927 book Giants in the Earth by O.E. Rolvag, you know, is an account of the bleak, long winters of want on the prairie and, mm-hmm. and how difficult that was, especially, especially for women. Sure. I mean, it's interesting. As I just said, you know, you look at the Midwest, it's such bounty, but you also have to remember that the... Um, uh, the weather and the winters yeah. in particular can be brutal, but yes. uh, you know Scandinavians, uh, the the Norwegians, the Swedish, and and certainly the Icelandic uh, mm-hmm. were absolutely capable and and used to these difficult winters, mm-hmm. um, and I'm sure we're able to um, bring that know how as you mentioned to the Midwest. Um, I want to turn a little bit to the iconic food traditions that one may associate with uh, uh, Scandinavia, um, Nor- Norwegian, Swedish. I-, I recall reading a pretty um, pungent, should I say, description of smoking fish um, involving uh, dipping it in, in lye. Um, so I really want to know a little bit more about these food traditions and how they were they were carried on and um, ultimately integrated into the Midwestern food landscape. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, you, you can't talk about Scandinavian food traditions without talking about lutefisk and lefse. Uh The lutefisk being a salt-preserved codfish. And although cod is not native to the Great Lakes, um, salt cod was available to migrants in the Midwest via, the, you know, the robust North Atlantic fisheries. Um, lutefisk was part of holiday traditions, and its preparation took place over several days. I've just looked at some of the old recipes that require three days of soaking and rinsing the fish and another three days of soaking it in lye and water. Uh, the lye was really to soften it up. Um, the rinsing was to get the salt out. 
More modern recipes call for soaking the fish in cold water for about three to four hours to remove the salt. And then placing the fish in in cheesecloth and boiling it until it's tender, at which point then it's served with cream sauce or butter. So it's not smoked fish, it's salt fish that's then reconstituted and made very soft. I see. Um, But I'll tell you, the thing the recipes don't tell you, uh, but my relatives did, is that making lutefisk made... Yeah, such an unpleasant odor in the house that, um, at least in my family, no one would have considered actually making it, let alone eating eating it. <laughs> I've, so. I've I've read this from from yes. other accounts, and yes. as you can tell, because I didn't know if it was smoked fish <laughs> or otherwise, I have not consumed this delicacy. But yes, I'm I'm glad that you can share share this with our listeners, and I think they probably are happy that they can't that that they can't <laughs> smell uh, through their through their device. <laughs> but, you know, there are other traditions, and um, one that is, is very strong, that's delicious, is lefsa. Um, lefsa is made from potatoes. We are the people of the potatoes. Um, this is boiled potatoes put through a ricer and then combined with butter, cream, uh, salt, and sugar, sort of made into a dough that's then rolled out flat and, and cooked, kind of like a, a tortilla on a hot griddle. Um, Lefse is served with butter and sugar and sometimes cinnamon spread hmm. on the surface and, the, and then rolled up. Um, it's absolutely delicious. And many people still make this at home. Um, but now it's also available in grocery stores during the holiday season, that sort of thing. Wow. So this is, this is something that isn't just necessarily um, being passed down um, regionally and traditionally through families, but because it's so prevalent... You can actually get it at the grocery store. Yes, that, so that just that just shows the kind of um, influence and impact um, the the Scandinavian culture has on the Midwestern foodways. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, there are some other things that people associate with Swedes, like the Swedish meatballs, um, which are traditionally ground beef, ground pork, and perhaps some veal, uh, but seasoned with allspice and um, some breadcrumbs, and then typically fried, served mm-hmm. maybe with some lingonberry. Um, what most people associate with <laughs> Ikea. Right? Exactly, exactly, the Swedish company. Um, you know, one of the things that I think few people might uh, know about is the use of cardamom. Green cardamom is a staple mm. for traditional sweetbreads, um, such as the Finnish pula, um, which is a wonderful, uh, again, another holiday tradition. So there are some really wonderful um, traditions with uh, bread, with baking, with um, with cookies, with kind of those holiday treats. Which is, again, very customary for, for many uh, communities uh, to be able to pass on their food traditions and highlight those through the holiday season. But I know that there's one very specific holiday that has a uh, unique significance in Scandinavian tradition that I know you've had some personal experience with, and I'd never heard about it before you had told me. So I want you to share that experience and some context about this December 13th holiday with our listeners. Sure, absolutely. Um, You're referring to the Feast of Santa Lucia or St. Lucia, which is a Swedish tradition practiced every December 13th. It's then in the darkest time of year that traditional Swedish households are awakened by the sound of young women singing 
Um, usually the eldest daughter leads a procession of other, other girls and, and young women, all dressed in white. Um, the leader is wearing a crown of lit candles and carrying bread and baked goods to serve to members of the family. So this is a festival of light and hope that helps usher in the Christmas season. Um, the origins of St. Lucia are obscure, but it's believed that Lucia of Syracuse was a 4th century martyr who brought food to Christians hiding from persecution um, in Rome. The legend was brought to Scandinavia, where it became this annual festival of light at the beginning of winter. Um, but whatever the origins, uh, the way in which the tradition is kept uh, makes it one of those cultural expressions that has has many layers of meaning, uh, including hospitality and service and nourishment and hope as as people in the north enter this long period of darkness. So um, yes, I went to a Swedish Lutheran college, Gustavus Adolphus College in St. Peter, Minnesota, where I witnessed this tradition four times, once a year. And um, in the dorms, we were awakened to this beautiful singing and the aromas of, of bread on a cold winter morning. Um, and when we peeked out the door, we could see the candles from Lucia's crown sort of retreating in the distance. It was just, it's just a really lovely memory that I have from that particular um, Swedish tradition. Well, that sounds absolutely wonderful. Yeah. And uh, now I want, now I want fresh bread and, uh, I, what, what kind of bread was this? Is there, was there a specific type of bread that was associated with this particular holiday? In this particular instance, no. It was just some of the, um, sweet breads that are so, um, sort of prevalent in the canon for, um, Christmas ho- holiday mm. baking in, uh, the Scandinavian tradition. Right. Well, that makes sense with uh, December 13th being part of that uh, holiday time of the year. So that, mm-hmm. that, that does make sense. Maybe one, one of these days I would love to see this. Does, do, does this continue to this day? I mean, maybe not necessarily at the, the college, but do people do this in the communities in the upper Midwest still? Um, not so much in the communities, definitely at Gustavus Adolphus every year they do really? it. Yeah. And uh, of course they still do it in Sweden. Um, there, there may be, you know, traditions in the American Swedish Institute or something like that. But, um, I, I know that the college continues it because I get the alumni newsletter. So ah, well, I, I mean, if I'm ever, if I'm ever in Minnesota, I may, on December 13th, I may have to, to check in there and see the lights of the candles and get some, some fresh break bread. Uh, on the topic of Minnesota, I mm-hmm. can't let you go. Um, and we can't talk about Minnesota without mentioning Nordic wear and the bunt cake. Yes. Uh, these are, <laughs> Nordic wear is an iconic brand and the bunt cake you know that circular cake is um so recognizable and these things have their roots in um in the midwest so you need to give us a brief history lesson on this star of american dessert before we let you go Okay, well, it's my pleasure to do so because one of the highlights of my time at the Smithsonian has been collecting the Nordic Ware archives along with a selection of bakeware from the company, which is still located in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. The company actually started in 1946 when two brothers, uh, after returning from World War II service in the Navy, started a company called Northland Aluminum Products. 
And they were making parts for different manufacturing purposes, um, as well as the specialty bakeware for the region's large Scandinavian populations. So, for example, they made um, what's called an Ebelskiver pan, which is for making these round Danish donuts filled with fruit, um, as well as uh, Norwegian rosette irons for cookies and, and that sort of thing. But around 1950, a woman named Rose Joshua from the local Hadassah Organization of Jewish Women asked the owner of the company, Dave Dahlquist, to make a cake pan like the Kugelhof pan that they had used in Europe, which is a round pan with a hole in the middle. Um, so the long story short, Dahlquist developed what he called the bunt pan, um, which was a heavy molded aluminum uh, cake pan. So um, the Bunt, uh, 1950, it was uh, first manufactured, but it was not an immediate success. It took Ella Helfrich, a woman in Texas, to place second in the 1966 Pillsbury Bake Off with her recipe for the Tunnel of Fudge Bunt Cake uh, before the pan really caught on. And that's when everybody started getting the Bunt pans and making these kinds of cakes. And now there are many different designs to the bunt pan. We have several in the Smithsonian collection, um, as well as the original production mold for that first bunt pan wow. in 1950. Yeah. So what's so interesting to me is that the company is still going strong after almost 75 years in business. And having started with this bakeware that they had branded made of Scandinavia, um, kind of reflecting their Nordic roots, so that's my uh, story of uh, Nordic Ware and the Bunt Pan and um, the collections at the Smithsonian. I love it. And I think that, <laughs> you know, probably everyone has their own story of the Bunt Pan, myself included. I have at least two Nordic Ware Bunt Pans myself and have made uh, a double chocolate chocolate chip uh, Bunt Cake as well as a um, a sour cream cinnamon coffee cake, bunt cake, just in the last few weeks. So <laughs> there I'm you a go. Huge, I'm a huge <laughs> fan. And now I'm, I'm that much better off knowing the backstory of these uh, great cake pans that we all know and love. And they've become part of uh, American baking history. But as you just said, with some Nordic roots and some Midwestern roots. So Paula Johnson, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Eat Your Heartland Out is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. 